Support for Alleist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Hey everybody, this is Off Ramp from LAS Studios. I'm John Raby. Every journalist I know has a version of this sad story. You know somebody who would be a great interview, but you keep putting it off, and then they die. This sounds morbid, but it happens a lot. Um, Luckily, I had learned my lesson about this uh, when I heard about the last World War I vet alive in California. This was like 15, 17 years ago or something. And so I made sure that interview happened, and it was fantastic. And then, of course, since he was like 113, he died pretty soon afterwards. The interview I'm running today is is one of those where I learned my lesson. Uh, the freelancer pitched it to me. I'm like, that's a good idea. How old is he? Okay, let's go do it. And in fact, the guy passed away a year later, but not before we got to talk with him and share his story in a long interview on Off Ramp. Picture this, it's 1951, LA's Olympic Auditorium. A black man is lying by the edge of the stage blowing his saxophone. The camera of Bob Willoughby is pointing out toward the audience, a mix of young, white, and brown men and women who are in the throes of ecstasy, pounding the stage, transported by the music. The sax player is Big J. McNeely. And as Sean J. O'Connell put it, this photo etched McNeely into pop music immortality. Central Avenue with Charlie Parker and Art Tatum in the 1940s to the R&B circuit in the 50s and 60s. McNeely was there through a roller coaster of musical evolutions. McNeely died in 2018, but O'Connell, Off-Ramp's jazz correspondent, talked with McNeely in 2017, when this nonagenarian piece of rock and roll history was still making them pound the stage with his neon saxophone. Big J, you look great. You're in a tie, a dress shirt. Yeah, well, you know, I had to look sharp for you cats, you know what I mean, you know. Especially when you meet some people like you guys, characters, you got to be sharp. You can't be coming out in no raggedy clothes, man. You got to look good, right? <laughs> you just celebrated your 90th birthday. Happy yeah, birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah, it was a monster. We had a great time. We did a couple of gigs, and we just blew the house down. You've been in Los Angeles all your life, is that correct? You grew up in Watts? Yeah, I was born and raised in Watts, 1927. On 110th Street. Uh, we live in a, a little comfort about three miles. We had all kinds of nations there. All nationalities, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Spanish. But the blacks couldn't go to Southgate, Linwood, or Compton. You know, it was restricted at that time. What kind of music did you grow up listening to? Well, you know, I started off playing jazz with Sonny Chris and Hampton Halls. We had a, a jazz group, and uh, I went to Jordan, and we finally went to Polytechnic, and then I graduated from Jefferson High School. And one day a guy said, man, uh, Big J, you want to record a very good friend of mine named Prince Stamps. I said, yeah, I didn't know what I was going to record. So it's a record guy had a record store in Watts, and he would go pick out this certain record. You know, he wouldn't get stacked. So he gave me a record by Glenn Miller with the drum. And I wrote Deacon's Hop. That was my biggest hit, yeah. And on this last one coming up by Big J, unfortunately we're rather restricted by the fact that we have microphones. Ordinarily on this one, Big J... Uh, stays on the stand only momentarily and roams 
through the aisles and that's the place over there all around the club here in Birdland. But because of the fact that our tables are rather short, we'll have to stay on the stand with this one. The Deacon's House, Big Day. How do you describe that sound? You're king of the honkers, but it's it's like a steam valve, just pushed to its limits. How do you describe what you create? Well, what it is like, it's repetition, you know. You play one note over. You play sometimes, you use barbarados, sometimes you don't use barbarados, and there's certain, on your horn, you can press certain keys that give different sounds. And like, you know, and I use a delay, you know, like, bah, bah, you know, and so it creates that excitement. And certain notes affect certain people certain ways. And so you play a low note, you play a high note. And so like when I'm coming through the audience blowing, I'm watching, if you were in a $300 suit, I'll play Laura, da, 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 then I'll next one, bam, and I'll hit the scrap of And like when you use that fast Bob Rada, man, it sounds just, it, it motivates you. There's it, a lot of guys play some great sounds, but the quality of the sound is, is bad, you know? And that's because they, they don't go to a teacher or learn, or some are able to listen to other people and acquire it, you know? But I fortunately never had a good teacher. I remember we did a big concert with Lionel Hampton. You know, his wife, she didn't want nobody to steal the show from me. So we was at the Wrigley Fields. You know, that's when they used to have on Avalon. And so when I got on the stage, you know, we was right behind second base. At that time, I didn't have a wireless, you know, because you could only hear me right. So my brother and I, we jumped off the stage behind second base, went by third base, went up into the grandstand, and everybody was hollering, go, hometown boy. So when I came back to second base, Lionel Hampton took this whole band down to, to the home plate. Then I laid on my back on second and crawled all across the field that first base and half taking the whole band we all went down in the dugout and so the next day the sentinel said hometown boy still show you know so i never worked with hemp again that was the best you're very well known for stealing the show the, the yeah. one of the most famous photographs bob willoughby ever took is of you on your back yeah. driving teenage kids to uh madness yeah i uh it's amazing that wasn't really part of my program, you know, to lay on the floor. But I was working in a little town called Clarkville, Tennessee. So small that, you know, you didn't have to have the address, just the name, you know. So we were working upstairs. So we were blowing our brains out, man, and nothing happened. Because we, we, we would play two hours, take a break, then come back and close the show. And so I'm trying to figure out what's going to, what I'm going to do next. So I, I, I got on my knees and nothing happened. So I said, well, I'll just lay on the floor. And man, they went crazy. And everybody from downstairs come up because they hear all this noise. To see the expression on those teenagers, were you afraid being on stage? No, man. I mean, you know, I would go play all the little high schools. So what they did, they barred me out of Los Angeles. I couldn't play because of the kids was acting, responding to the music, and they didn't know why they were responding in that way. They would take pictures, I guess they would try to analyze it, and uh, they couldn't find out what's happening. So they said, well, we just barred this guy. We won't give him no permit to play. 
My manager said, Big J, you have to be staged. And this guy had never staged an uh, act like that. He worked the Tropicana in Hollywood because he went to Vegas, you know. You have to know how to get on the stage, how to get off the stage, how to bother people. All that's very, but like Levi Rachi. A whole lot of guys play more piano Levi Rachi, but the way he conducted himself, that's where he made that $50,000 a week. So the guy watched me for a whole, whole week. And I used to take off my coat and throw it on the floor and go pick it up. He said, don't do that, man, because you're a king. Somebody else did that. That was one thing. Then he taught me how to program people. And uh, I wasn't trying to sing then, so I would segue from one number to another. And you never let people, you know, like sometimes guys get on the bandstand and they'll play a number, then they sit around and talk, decide what they're going to do. No, you hit them. When rock and roll is different than rhythm and blue. All right, now, like, when I do concerts, I, I do a lot of concerts in Europe. I'll be the only black on the show. But I know what they want. They want everything up kicking. Like, I got a thing called, like, I do, like, insect ball. But do bop, 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 bang, and I pat, you know, on, on a swing kick. But then when I do it on the rock and roll, I change it, you know. As I'm past the insect hop, insect head with the insect bone, the bone won't be head of special and by the head fly, fleas, gnats, and bees, do the dead and in the BB. Now jump, 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 as I pass the insect ball, the insect head with the insect bone, the head of fat bug, skinny bug, fat bug, they will the rocking and the rolling and the don't 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 jump. You know, so it's, it's a different groove, you know. You're 90 years old. You had a wonderful career. You look back, are you happy? Yeah, because, you know, uh, it's fortunate enough that I can still play <laughs> and groove. Because, uh, you know, I'll try to live a clean life, you know. And uh, I, I know I was in Germany and I was walking around and saying, man, I'm 75. I haven't got much longer to live, you know. <laughs> Because the Bible say uh, 80, you know. I got baptized as a Jehovah Witness when I was 12. And um, my hope is for the kingdom of God where you can live forever and ever, you know. And so that's what has kept me from getting involved. Because see, being in the entertaining world, you exposed to everything. Everything, you know what I'm saying? And I had so many of my friends got involved with drugs. And, and I see them go by the wayside this law, but because they had no hope. See, when you put your whole life and everything into a career and it don't happen, it, it affects some people. But to me, the kingdom is the only hope for me, you know, so I'm still looking for that. I'm 90 years old. I'm still looking for that, you know, so, so regardless of what happened around me, it doesn't really matter. Man, that interview brings back memories. That was a really great day. I went with Sean J. O'Connell to, to do the interview and got to meet Big J. And like I said, he passed away a year later, but not before we got to hear him tell his story in person, got to meet him. He was a great guy, and I'm so glad we had him on Off Ramp back in 2017. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. This is a production of LAS Studios. I'm John Raby, and I'll catch you next time on the Off Ramp. Because our love is free. 
This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.